Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 306th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that knows our way around hot specs and bad decks as we run the rooftops on super sweet ninja treks. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co host this week, as always, is Travis Allen at Wizard Bumpin' on Twitter. And we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, James. Glad to be here and looking forward to another great episode where we'll share some valuable information with all of you. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to plan your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, what do we have on the agenda this week? Well, this week I figured we would stick to our tried and true plans. Someone recommended uh, reversing, I think, segments 2 and 3, um, and they were promptly uh, executed for such claims. Segment one, our MTGO metagame week in review. We have a modern challenge, two modern challenges uh, from just a couple days ago. Top, segment two, our top paper movers. We have a, a good chunk of cards here uh, on the paper movers that have moved the most in price this week, along with some MTGO cards. Segment three, our cards to watch. We've got a pretty full list for you here this week of cards to keep an eye on. Might have some price gains in the future. And finally, four, segment four, our weekly topic when to give up on bad specs, and I think there's probably a good conversation to be had there. Uh, let's start out here, our metagame week in review, the modern challenge from January 8th, um, and right off the top two slots here, four-color Yorion Omnath. Uh, a familiar sight here, for sure, and in case you weren't sure if this deck was still good, um, y- yep, it's <laughs> still there. I think we can safely say that Four-color Yorian Omnath decks are S-tier at this point. There's various iterations floating around. This one that's not focused on the elemental synergies seems to be the most popular at present, and probably one of the top three decks in the format alongside Hammer Time and maybe Blue-Red Merktide, um, although it doesn't seem to be as dominant lately as it has been in the recent past. We've got Mono Red Prowess in third here, uh, Instead of Burn, this is the one that features four Reckless Impulse, a bunch of prowess creatures, and cheap red spells. Uh, those Reckless Impulse foils uh, have been on the move, and I won't be surprised if it ends up being uh, one of the more important uh, common cards from this set. Grixis Shadow in fourth, Black-White Hammer Time, again making an appearance in fifth, running two Dark Confidant and three Thought Seas in the main, presumably to deal with uh, issues in the meta. Um... Sixth place is Jeskai Control, which is mostly blue-white control with a smattering of red spells and in the form of fire and ice and a couple of other options. And then again, the four-color Yoran was in seventh and blue-red Murktide in eighth. Yeah, nothing too out of the ordinary there. I mean, maybe the splash on the Hammer Time is, is less common. We don't see Dark Confidant as much these days. Uh, I do kind of like that twist 
give it a little extra card draw as well as a Thosties to protect their strategy. But um, yeah, that's all, all pretty familiar. Uh, the over on the challenge on the next day on the ninth, uh, it looks slightly different here. A couple more, slightly m more out, 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 more outline outliers. Um, got into that sentence and did not know how to finish it. Um, Hammer time takes first. What, what's that? Yeah, a, a few more outliers in the top eight. If that's what you're yeah. getting at. Yeah. Uh, although the, the first the first place deck is a pretty straightforward hammer time list the only thing that jumps out at me there is a copy of ginger brute this is the food golem from <laughs> throne of eldraine it's a 1-1 haste creature for one it can't be blocked this turn except by creatures with haste so if you get a hammer on it you can basically hit them upside the head and ignore their blockers um then we have mono green tron making a rare rare appearance in second the third place deck is uh, is something. Uh, definitely the quirkiest deck of the week, I think. We've got a four-color aggro control list. And I say that because there are 11 creatures, all of which are fairly aggressive. Four Dragons Rage Channeler, two Crocs, a Titan of Death's Hunger, four Ragavan, and a Snapcaster Mage. This is pretty similar to the creature uh, loadout you would see in a black-red mid-range list, uh, such as been running around lately. But then you've got 12 Sorceries and 12 Instants and 4 Mishra's Bobble rounding out the deck. And all of those spells are very control side. You've got 3 Expressive Iteration for card selection and draw. 4 Inquisition of Kozilek and 2 Thoughtseize to protect your, uh, your aggressive creatures. You've got 3 Prismatic Ending to handle all sorts of things. 3 Drown in the Lock, Counterspell or Creature Control. 2 Gaia's Kaya's Guile, which can do fulfill a variety of roles, including clearing out graveyards, um, presumably against the Esper and uh, white-black reanimation strategies that have been floating around. Two Coligan's Command in the main, which uh, lets you uh, deal with artifacts at a hammer time, etc., while taking care of smaller creatures a lot of the time. Two Lightning Bolt and three Unholy Heat, which can run double duty targeting creatures or planeswalkers. Yeah, if I'm calling this anything, it's probably tempo. Um, you know, for people who played back in the uh, M15 era, was that when? Uh, hold on, let me get the 2012. I think Magic. Yeah, it was Return to Ravnica when you had like Delver and Phantasmal Image and um, on Summon, but or Vapor Snag. That was real tempo play. And that, this kind of reminds me of that. You have these ultra-cheap creatures who generate some card advantage for you um, and some you know, with additional functionality, and then they're backed up by very cheap spells that are meant to uh, put the opponent on the back foot with some hand disruption. This is a little more spot removal oriented. Um, it, it's tough to call it really tempo-oriented because there's not a tremendous amount of disruption uh, but I mean, you do have the three drown in the lock, which is a which is a counter spell. Um, but yeah, it seems to be the closest analogy I would I could come up with here. Interesting list though. I and the, the, I'm, I'm inclined to call it tempo because with a mana base like this, they are going to take every damage they can with their shock lands and not care at all because if they ever get behind, they're probably just done for. So we got. Blue-Red Merktide in fourth, one of the only decks still running four Lightning Bolts. I don't think the Omnath lists are. Let me just double-check that. 
It is wild that Ragman yep. and Dragon Rage Channeler are the most popular creatures in the format. And Lightning Bolt is not a four of. Because Unholy Heat is so much better against Planeswalkers. They are all over the place. Because they can do six damage to a Planeswalker. Yeah, but like, I feel like you just play both. Well, I mean, in, in the blue-red decks, they're running four bolt, four, four Unholy Heat, so they certainly agree. Um, the But they're, I've... you know, they can't, they're not on Prismatic Ending, Thoughtseize, or uh, uh, what else did we see in that last one? Uh, Inquisition of Kozlek or Drown on the Lock, so there's that. Yeah. Do you uh, see the Spell Pierce artwork? That's, I forgot about that secret yeah, layer. That's terrible. That is, uh, that is wild. Uh, we've got New Jund in fifth here, and this is, you know, they've given up their Dark Confidants and passed them over to Hammer Time, but Hammer Time, but this Jund deck has taken on two Turok Dreck Cantor from the Black Red list. Uh, that mono white, uh, or pro white, uh, status on Turok coming in more and more handy against the endless prismatic endings in the format. Four Elvish Reclaimer in the main is something we haven't seen in the Jund list lately. I remember this being splashed a couple of years ago when it first came out, um, and it's certainly done some work in Legacy, but haven't seen it in Modern for a while. And of course, this new Jund runs the Urza Saga package, and they can go get Pyrite Spellbomb, Shadow Spear, Soul Guide, Lantern as necessary, running all the, the usual discard and, and uh, hand destruction spells. Uh, still doing work in the format. I mean, yeah, being able to to have Elvish Reclaimer to either fix your mana, which seems unlikely, but at least it's an option. But, I mean, it, it does seem like, yeah, really the only target here for Elvish Reclaimer is the Urza Saga. Uh, but that's a nifty little trick. The Urza Saga can turn something else into your one-drop Elvish Reclaimer can turn something else into an Urza Saga, which then goes and gets a... Uh, bullet artifact that's some nifty little functionality for john the pack in here on a what is effectively a one mana three three well an elvish reclaimer can do a fairly decent uh tarmogoyf impression once you get three lands in, in the yard and it becomes a three four and with uh, other ways in the deck to facilitate that going down uh between sacking all your fetches and your urza sagas eventually dying um, and then Red and Six gives you the option of picking that stuff back up if you want to make more use of it, and then throwing it back in the yard to help Reclaimer again via the other means. Not bad. Yeah, and I mean, just getting to trade with Ragavans is not even the worst. Yep, it's true. On on one, yeah, drop, drop a Reclaimer, they drop Ragavan. Now they, they have to use a kill spell to get through, and uh, yeah. So we got Infect making a very rare appearance in 6th. Largely, I think people assume that the Infect slot in the meta has been taken over by Hammer Time. But uh, here we are with Infect wiggling its way into a top 8. Uh, be curious to see if they can do more of that. This this is an Infect list with 4 Phyrexian Crusader main. Which again, seems very much to be a uh, nod to Prismatic Endings and Ragavans and DRCs and a variety of other things. Um, that might want to target it. Teferi, uh, Time Raveler can't bounce it. There's Crusader is, if you've got time to set up with it, not a bad creature to be putting on the board these days. Yeah, protection from red and white covers a lot of bases. A lot of ground right uh, now. And I would imagine 
that the reason we're seeing this infect list is almost entirely because of Phyrexian Crusader being just so potent in this meta. Uh, and the seventh, we've got Hardened Scales. We've seen this recently, but not a whole lot of it. Four Zabaz, the Glimmer Wasp, out of MH1, uh, MH2. Uh, four Ingenious Smith out of AFR from last summer. Three Esper Sentinel from MH2. Four Hardened Scales. Uh, and then three the Ozolith out of Ikoria, uh, rounding out the list. And of course, they get to run Urza Sagas as well, since they have a ton of one-casting cost artifacts. Yeah. So that's... Uh... It's a decent little deck, too. It's been a bit since we've seen Hardened Scales. Uh, Hanging around, yeah. There's If you were wondering whether the Black-White Hammer Time was a two-time fluke in the challenge on the 8th, it also finished 8th in the challenge on the 9th. So Black-White Hammer Time versus regular Hammer Time, Mono-White Hammer Time. There's also been some Blue-White Hammer Time running around. Seems like different pilots have different opinions as to how to build the deck. Yeah, probably a different version, different, slightly better on any given week. All right, so moving on over to Top Paper Movers, segment two. Dive right in here with Urza Saga out of Modern Horizons 2. Non-foil version going from just pack regular version going 36 to 42. That's only 17% gains, but that's that's a signal for the future uh, in my mind. This is the kind of card that gets bought so frequently that even with all the MH2 product that's opened, um, with so many people wanting four copies plus of it. I mean, if you got a couple of EDH decks that need it and a modern deck that runs four, you might own six copies of Saga and be happy to do it. Um, so this this card could easily end up being a $50, 60 $70 rare within a year, would be my guess. That's a lot of Saga. Uh, yeah, I mean, 36 to 42 already. I mean, I say already, but and there was- I agree that... And there was copies mm-hmm. as cheap as $20 in the summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it does seem likely that this is not going to slow down. It's just going to keep pushing up unless uh, unless it gets a reprint, basically, because the demand is just so high. You know, you, you really can't sit down to play modern without either having your own copies or having a plan to beat other people's copies in your deck, or both. And, and, given, and given the fact that the card has been it's basically still in print i mean modern horizon 2 is not necessarily done with its print run although i would imagine future waves will be relatively modest given all the other things coming out this year the you know the card certainly is in no danger of a reprint in 2022 by my reckoning Mm, yeah i i would say that it's uh they 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 would have had to know that this card was going to be format defining which i'm not fully giving them credit for so i would agree so if we look like what they did for modern horizon one cards they waited two years then they gave us some reprints in the form of the foil uh the old border foils in modern horizons 2 renin 6 is probably the poster child for double masters 2 in the summer based on early art we saw so we can expect to see probably fancy new art borderless versions of mh1 cards popping up there again and if they're using that kind of a schedule, then Saga is probably only safe for a couple of years. But, you know, Modern Horizons 3 gets announced for 2023 or something, then you're going to get borderless fancy sagas. Yeah, it, I mean, looking at Modern Horizons 1, it's probably a very fair way to say, you know, if they if that came out and they did not bother to reprint anything, then, uh, it, you know, before Modern Horizons 2, then 
most likely we're not getting the MH2 stuff before MH3 in what 2023, yeah. mid 2023. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. All right. So Demir, then we... Demir Signet Secret Layers here, fifteen to twenty, but you picked it up uh, about five weeks ago at seven bucks. So that seems to be a feather in your cap here. Yeah, both Arcane Signet and Demir Signet from the Secret Layers, the Dan Fraser versions called on cast. Uh, we're right on time for an early win. Didn't take long for those secret layers to drain out, which makes sense because a ton, metric shit ton of decks in EDH are going to want that version of the card. Uh, a lot of nostalgia callback there and uh, might run counter to some of the uh, impressions that people had been building up that old border foils were not necessarily uh, desirable or old borders themselves were not necessarily desirable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We got Hagare, the Still Wind, out of Plane Chase Anthology, uh, a fairly rare version of the card, going 20 to 28. That's chasing other versions that are already in the 30s. I know I sold, I think, uh, a copy around 20 last week, which was probably a little too low, and now you're seeing TCG uh, copies on most of the key ninjas pump pretty hard heading into the uh, Kamigawa Neon, Neon Dynasty hype cycle. Sarkin Unbroken Foils out of Dragons of Tarkir going 25 to 36, 44% gains. That's probably on the back of Tiamat, still pretty, being pretty popular coming out of the summer as a, a Dragon Commander. I think that was a spec of mine like three or four years ago that took a long, it's long, sweet, meandering trail to get anywhere. Um, feel like I may have called it, when did we hear about Dragons? Maybe Strixhaven? We knew that there was going to be dragon masters um but ends up being the case that tiamat was the was the more important impetus for the card to move turok dread cantor foils from modern horizons 2 going from 8 to 12 50 percent gains that's on relatively expansive modern play um cards doing a lot better than people thought it would when it was first revealed um, and then Eater of the Dead, we already touched on in recent weeks, but it's pushed up a little further. Uh, a dark card that interacts primarily with Umbrus, uh, going from 60 to 92. Umbrus doesn't have stats on EDH Rec that are all that impressive, so I continue to believe that Umbrus-related specs are largely speculation-driven, and I'm curious whether to what extent the market will support these new plateaus. Yeah, I mean, the card is very cool, but it has not shown up as a major commander on EDA truck at all. So it, I would agree it's kind of hard to to think that that's that much of a driver of card prices at this point. I mean, you can get real cute with the card in the deck. The thing that we, we noted and when you checked the gatherer text for it was that you have to untap it from it being tapped. To activate the ability and exile a card that then makes your umbrus bigger so you want to have something like opposition where you can tap eater of the dead and then untap it infinitely yeah and if you've got presumably a blue card in play that's going to let you do that then you can do some very nasty things very quickly but as just a thing that slowly makes umbrus bigger it's not that impressive nope <laughs> uh Bladewing the Risen, FTV foil, FTV Dragons foil version going from 11 to 18. Also presumably Tiamat related pressure. We've got Selenia, Dark Angel at a Tempest. 
uh, non-foils going from 8 to 16. Uh, it's a reserve list card, but I can't think of any specific reason why anybody cares about that this particular week. And then we got a bunch of more ninjas-related stuff. We got Marsh Crocodile out of Planescape, uh, plane Planeshift, Planescape. I always get uh, these two confused. Plane, not plane chase. Planescape. Yeah, plane, planescape. Planescape. <laughs> Let me double check plane that. Sweep. I know. I know plane this card. I remember this card well because I ran it in a black blue gating deck at one point back in the day. Plane shift. Plane shift is the name of. Yeah, this is cool in ninja decks because when it comes into play, you get to return a blue or black creature to your hand and basically reload for ninjutsu. Uh, there was also a flavor, uh, a world building panel that was on Twitch and YouTube today from Wizards, and they confirmed that ninjutsu is definitely in the new Kamigawa set, but Bushido is not. So presumably hmm. they've got some fresh mechanic for the samurai, but the ninjas will definitely be ninjutsuing which makes cards like this look pretty reasonable. Uh, you've got Cunning Evasion, uh, Modern Horizon 1 foil uncommon that also helps the ninjas going from $1 to $3. Those will probably get up to 5 6 maybe even 10 by the time this is over with. Kasali Ambusher uh, out of Shards of Alara. Uh, can't remember if the set code for Shards is SHD or SHA. I want to say SHA. I'm re reasonably confident. I think you're... It's SHA. Actually, apparently it's ALA. Oh, 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 oh. Shards of Alar was the first one. That's ALA. Okay. So, apparently I was wrong in both directions. Anyway, Kosali Ambusher recently showed up as tech in a modern domain deck that 5 0 to Modern League on January 7th. That was four days ago. And apparently the foils took off from 4 to 20. I would be absolutely trying to exit on those i might have a couple of those sitting around and i will go ahead and get those live tonight because i don't think that the domain decks are likely to post up at the center of this meta yes i i applaud our uh, the heroes here but that does seem weak i mean you you, you get a free two three if a creature attacks you, I mean, it's good at block at surprising ragbands, but like, that's it. Yeah. I mean, like, it's kind of funny if you put a fetch land into play on turn one and pass, if they go, if they're first and play ragavan, I mean, let me look at this. They turn one ragavan pass turn one. You play fetch pass turn two. They attack with ragavan. You crack the fetch, get a, um, temple garden. temple garden, and then put Kazali ambusher in the play for free. I mean, that's there. You are definitely playing the deck for that interaction. You got to do that to somebody. It felt great. <laughs> that's, that's living the dream as they say. And then if, if in new Capenna, you get you, they do what I think they're going to do. And they give us the, uh, other part of the tri land cycle from Ikoria. Like you get a Grixis cycling Triland, mm -hmm. then you can take the Temple Garden on turn one, block the Ragavan. Turn two, you'll have all five. You'll have Domain, and you can cast your Scion of Draco for two mana. Ooh, that would be fun. Which is already in the deck, but you—I don't think you can sequence to do those two things back to back if you start with Temple Garden until you get mm -hmm. the Grixis land right. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Clackbridge Troll, Foil Extended Art Smell Drain went from $8 to whatever you think they're worth right now. There's 
they're basically almost sold out. I think there's one listed at $80. I don't really know what's going on here. The card is in 54% of Toxrill decks, but Toxrill is the 21st most built commander of the last month. So. Wow. It fell that far, huh? And this, even when you give them tokens and they die immediately, you, you still just get an 8-8 eight, eight trample for 5, which is fine, but that's pretty easily handled in a game of EDH. So this feels very, like, speculator suspicious to me. I don't, I can't see how this is natural demand. Yeah, like someone must have shown something with this, seen something cute. Maybe it was on a command zone or something, and a bunch of people went, and a couple people went and snapped up a bunch of copies in the hopes that everyone would want to go buy it. Because I'm with you. Like, I, 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 like, what is the, what is the, the best outcome for this card, right? Well, and here's the other thing. There, there have been a couple of weird movers lately. There was that owl out of Strixhaven that was in the extended art version that moved pretty hard that had to do with tokens as well. So it's possible that somebody has seen a commander for the uh, Kamigawa commander decks and knows some tokeny goodness is coming our way. And it's trying to go after token the cards that they think there are going to be a, a cinch uh, to be included. But I don't have any intel that, that proves that out. So I guess we'll wait and see. Yeah, like I'm trying like... Clagbury Troll is a five mana eight eight trample haste. Like oh okay, like that's not that interesting. So the best thing you're doing potentially is like giving somebody these goat tokens. But how much does that matter? What is going on that those goat tokens are that important? I'm having trouble with it. Yeah. Uh, Dolman Gate, on the other hand, makes makes a lot of sense. It's a Lorwyn era foil, which are already hard to come by. Um, it's an auto-include in ninja decks because your creatures don't take any com- combat damage, so you can just kind of like swing for the fences and ninjutsu whatever you want to without risk of losing anything. And then do it again. So these have gone from 10 or $11 to 60 70 80 whatever you think people are going to pay for them. Yeah, Dolman Gate is a, a long-time familiar card. I might have some of these floating around. I don't know. I'd have to go look. But uh, that's a nifty card. That and Door Destinies, I know I've got, I've poked around with before. Um, but yeah, definitely solid in the Ninjutsu decks. You attack for free, essentially. I like it. I think that's a pretty solid spec. If you're going to spec on Ninja stuff, I think that's a very good choice, actually. So supply side constrained, yeah. Yeah, it's supply side constrained, and it's very good in a Ninja deck, right? Like that's that's exactly the type of card you want to have access to. Now, if one of the two... I, so far, I'm assuming that one of the um, commander decks is about vehicles and ninjas, and the other one is about samurais that are getting getting upgraded, because we have that new keyword that means that your thing has a token on it or it's been improved in some way. Um, but if it turns out that one, of the, that one of those two decks is not ninja-focused, then what wizards could do is... They could give us another bespoke secret layer deck, potentially for Yuriko. And a lot of this stuff like Dolman Gate and, and uh, Marsh Crocodile and Cunning Evasion and whatever would def- could definitely catch a non-foil or foil reprint. Um, so trying to trying to think ahead to spot what you think the you know the focus of these decks are going to be and whether how clo- closely the themes might end up being tied to releases 
is certainly worth pondering, although the certainly the coin flip deck wasn't tied to anything specific. Right, right. It's, uh... yeah, I, I would agree that, the, I mean, the foils are tasty here, um, or at least a little more secure, because some of this stuff could definitely show up as a, as a return in those additional commander decks because it's a great place to put the card anyways, especially if it was not terribly expensive before we got here. Um, so the non-foils are very tempting, but do come with, I would say, a pretty big disclaimer there. All right, so now is likely a good time to remind you all about the Cool Stuff Inc. Customer Rewards Program. The more you buy with our 5% off coupon, Finance 5, that's the number 5, the closer you get to even higher rewards, including up to 15% off Magic Singles in Assorted Minis, uh, something I use on a regular basis. Head on over to CoolStuffInc.com today to build your loyalty and save big. That'll lead us on into the top MTGO movers of the week. We've got some triomes on the list here. We've got uh, Ketria Triome out of Ikoria going from 4.7 ticks to about 6.8, 45% gains on the back of multi-format play. Very handy, especially when you can fetch to be able to pull a tri-land into play. Cycle it late game if you don't need it. Archive Trap out of Zendikar going from two, just over two ticks to three and a half, uh, 70% gains uh, driven by Blue Black Mill, putting up fairly regular results in Modern. And then Rogrin Triome out of Ikoria, uh, similarly to the Ketria, going from 8.5 ticks to almost 15, 74% gains there. Mm. Those Triomes feel like there is a long future out there for those. When I look at the foil extended art versions of those and consider how long it might be before they bother to reprint them, uh, see, every year they let them slide is going to be a year where they go up another 15 20%. Yeah, I have a couple, but not nearly enough, and I feel like I should own more than I do. I went pretty deep on them, especially Japanese foil showcase versions, and... I'm in no rush to enter the market and start selling. I've, I've like dabbled in testing market pricing here and there, but haven't really got serious about unloading them. And I, if new Capenna has the other five, then people are going to be starting to look to build out full play sets of the 10 for their EDH decks. And it's only going to help the originals. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, moving over to cards to watch. I'll give you my first selection of the week here. How about Hallbreaker Horror, Foil Extended Arts on a, it's called a 12-month horizon, because uh, they're not being played as four ofs in any competitive uh, format. So it's going to be largely EDH-driven demand. You might only have one or two decks that want the card. Give it a confidence level of eight. It's out of uh, Innistrad Crimson Vow, and... That extended art frame in foil currently going for about $19 or $20. I would imagine by the time things are done, it's going to be a $40 plus card on the back of there being already 5.2 thousand decks on EDH rec, which is 13% of all blue decks since it was announced. Uh, solid late game finisher that can't be countered, has flash, very easy to do to do work, good work for you in the late game and in a mid-tier game of Commander. Uh, yeah, that's got solid numbers. I mean, 13% since its release uh, is, that's quite a few decks, actually. I mean, that's, what, one in six, one in seven or something like that, which is very good. And this is uh, basically better Tide Spout Tyrant, which was already a great card. 
Um, just casting spells and bouncing stuff to people's hand is very powerful for sure. Uh, and we're looking at the just the non-foil extended arts at twenty bucks. Yeah, these are. No, oh, sorry, it's legit. Sorry, it's meant to be foil extended arts. Oh, foil extended arts. Okay. So we're looking at forty listings. There are a couple of walls. Like one vendor has nine copies on TCG Player at twenty. The biggest wall is MTG Decks and More has thirty four copies at twenty bucks. But everybody else is you know mostly onesie twosie. And uh, there's no huge gaming company wall left here. Somebody probably targeted it already. Yeah, I mean, we're pretty much, you know, when you look at this, that's kind of, uh, we're roughly at the supply glut, right? If we're talking about Innistrad Crimson Vow, the set came out like two-ish, three months ago. So there's about as many of that stuff as there's going to be, which means, you know, that it doesn't feel great buying in because inventories are on the high side, but that's fine because it means you're probably pretty close to the absolute floor for a lot of cards at this point. Paper standard, given everything going on with COVID, is basically dead again. So, yep, not sure is. Not, not a whole lot of reason to be buying fall sets standard cards. Oh, um, yeah, that I don't see Crimson Bab moving much more product these days. All right, what's your first selection this week? Uh, I mean. It seems pretty clear based on the spoilers we've seen, uh, especially the, uh, I'm going to say, perhaps non-official spoilers, that enchantments are coming back in a pretty reasonably meaningful way here. Um, we have two cards that were spoiled yesterday, a green and white card, both referencing enchantments and auras. So I think that's going to be um, you know, the sub-theme of green white and kamigawa here so i'm kind of making picks based on that fact and there are uh, a couple a couple cards you could go with here if you're making a play for that um i picked two but you know there's probably a, a variety that you could make work for you um so i picked three but the first one that jumped out at me is satyr enchanter this was a uncommon from magic 2019 and it's just an enchantress. It's a three mana two two creature. Whenever you cast an enchantment spell, draw a card. It's actually literally the exact same text as enchantress. But this is a eighty five cent uncommon and eight dollar foil. Uh, so there's definitely some demand there. He's in twelve and a half thousand EDH rec decks, so he's definitely getting played. If you're playing an enchantment deck, you are almost certainly buying a satyr enchant- enchanter. Um, again, this is M nineteen. There were no special, no fancy copies of this. You got the pat copy or you got the foil copy, and that was it. And it's also short of a secret layer. No way you're going to see any more of these anytime soon, at least in foil. Like in foil. You're not going to see any super premium versions, right? Because what would they give you? It's just an uncommon from an older set. But you can get them right around 9 bucks right now, 8 to $9. There's only eight listings left on TCG Player, so inventory is very shallow. Um, there are one guy's got like eight, uh, and then a couple people have like two and three. So it's eight listings means there's probably you know t- about twenty copies, but that's not a lot, especially when enchantments haven't even really been confirmed for Kamigawa. We're just kind of looking at a couple of the spoilers and seeing a theme um, that that's probably going to come through. So with it, with that, working on the assumption that enchantments are going to be a theme in Kamigawa. Um, this is now M19 is like four, five years old. 
uh, very few foil listings around the nine buck range. I think you buy them and then you shoot to sell up at like 15, between 15 and 20. And you're not buying, you're not going to buy 20 of these, but you know, a place that would probably work well for you. I got to say, I'm not convinced on the Kamigawa angle here, but I am convinced on the card because Sithis Harvest Hand, which is the legendary enchantment creature nymph from MH2 that costs green, white, one one power two toughness that states whenever you cast an enchantment spell you gain one life and draw a card has basically given enchantress the most efficient commander possible and she's the 12th most built commander of the last month on edh rec 761 decks reporting in which probably means low single digit thousands worldwide uh, of people that are building and maintaining the deck and they probably want a satyr enchanter in there because it just fits perfectly and I think whether or not you get major enchantment themes in Kamigawa, this is uh, this is where the support, the underlying support structure resides. Do you um, do you think that the theme is going to be very mild, or do you not think they're doing the theme? Uh, well, I mean, what cards tripped you on that? Like Cami of Transience was revealed. It's a two-two spirit for one and a green. Trample whenever you cast an enchantment spell. Put a plus one plus one counter on it. At the beginning of each end step, if an enchantment was put into your graveyard from the battlefield this turn, you get to return that cameo of transience to your hand. Is that what tipped you off? You've got you have cameo uh, of transience, uh, which was just spoiled, uh, which is very clearly wants you to play enchantment spells, and then light pause emperor's voice is um, all about auras, which are obviously all enchantments. And uh, back right after Christmas, we saw Okagachi, which is the enchantment saga which also then creates an enchantment creature. Um, so, I mean, this is, I'm not saying it's a, it's a lock. I'm just kind of looking at it and going, hmm, this seems like there's a bit of a sub-theme here. So that's kind of what I'm working from. And these cards are in generally decent shape anyways. And then, you know, if that pans out, it's even better. Light Paws fits into Zur the Enchanter pretty nicely. Yeah, Light Paws is a cool card. I wish it wasn't mono white. Light Paws, um, and this was just spoiled yesterday on the on Reddit. It's a two mana uh, white bear, Fox Advisor, and it's a legendary creature. It's just it's just mono white, so you're stuck in white. But whenever an aura enters the battlefield under your control, if you cast it, you can search your library for another aura card with a mana value less or equal with a different name and put it onto the battlefield attached to Light Paws. So you play a three mana aura, like, you know, an enchant creature, and then you get to go get a two mana enchantment and put it on Light Paws. And then you play a four mana enchantment on someone, and then you get to go get a three mana enchantment, well, no, no, no. four mana it's, enchantment. It's less than or equal, so you can get a four right. off a of four. Yeah, yes, 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 that's true. So it is kind of nifty that you get to kind of build... Get, go do that searching, which admittedly is going to end up kind of one note, I think, um, because when you're searching your deck that often, you end up just getting the same ones over and over and over. But it is still kind of a cool concept, a, a cool way to play, I thought. Well, again, I don't I like think Light Paws is, is going to be a popular commander. I just think it goes in Zur because this is yeah. this is Zur's whole thing. And this is this is some nice uh, backup plan action to get a kind of a cheap version of Zur on the table and start going to work. Yes, yeah, for sure. I mean, at the very least, it's it's giving you another vector there if you're if you've got Zur in play. 
Um, all right. So, I mean, I can still see Seder Enchanter getting there. Um, my next selection is Nicol Bolas Dragon God. And I'm not looking at the stained glass version, not looking at the fancy Mythic Edition 3 version, which has already taken off. I think it's in the 60s or 70s right now. I'm just looking at pack foil Nicol Bolas Dragon God. Now, I think the, the drag here is that this card has a bunch of versions. It's got the promo pack version. It's got this version. It's got the Mythic Edition 3 pre-release cards there's a stained glass version that came out of the secret layers that are still available around 10 bucks and are going to take some time to drain but there are some people that just want original pack foil and still care about that stuff and you can tell because there are just five listings left for this version of the card on tcg player they are between 20 and 25 dollars and once they are gone there are none left there are a total of 3 12 13 copies in that price range and then I don't know where else you're getting these. Nickel Bulls, Dragon God, Pack Foils. It is really hard to find that card. <laughs> when you come like looking at Scryfall and I'm like, there are a lot of damn printings of this card. Which one is the actual pack copy? Um, as a yeah. as a full Grixis Planeswalker, it's only in 7,600 decks, but that's 7% of all Grixis decks. And, yeah, 7,600 is real good for a three-color card. And and Dragon God has a very unique ability. It has all loyalty, loyalty abilities of all other Planeswalkers on the battlefield, whether you control them or not. So when he drops, he gets to do some very nasty things. And you can there are ways to uh, double him up. You can... Fool, you can uh, I think the Jace from Ixalan does really nasty things with him. Um, because that Jace has the ability to make copies of itself. And so mm-hmm. it lets Nicol Bolas mm-hmm. make copies of himself because it has the same ability. And as time goes on, there's just going to be more and more silly things that you can do with this card and other Planeswalkers. So original pack for This is a card they will for sure, for sure reprint at some point. But pack foils are... The very first printing are looking very safe and underpriced versus that Mythic Edition 3 version. Um, stained glass, I think you can also make an argument that given that how cheap they are, if you're willing to hold them for a couple of years, they're probably going to get there too because the stained glass art is the same art with stained glass over top of it. It ha- so happens that the stained glass version looks very nice. Uh, they will curl more than the pack foils uh, do given the nature of those stained glass secret layer cards. So... Make your pick. I, I'm going to go with the one with the with the supply side benefits here and call this to go 20 to 40 within a year. Yeah, I mean, with five copies, five vendors, uh, that seems totally fine. I think that's uh, it's hard to be cranky about that. That's so few for a card that definitely had more than that originally. So you want, um, want to take a look, look for these overseas, in Europe, and Japan, local stores. You want to check other nooks and crannies online. And you don't have to go super deep on this, but you, you grab one for whatever deck you, you've got built where this makes sense. And a couple more copies for spec, I think you're going to be doing just fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I like that. I also want to know why you uh, didn't recommend that everyone go buy the uh, $180 foil one from japan <laughs> oh yeah because they're, they're, you're right there's that version too the uh the one that was in japanese were the spark boxes so yeah it, it, i'm being facetious yet, yet another version. that wasn't clear well i mean it's not it's not a crazy 
crazy reference because it's definitely worth noting that there is yet another actually there's there's two other versions because there's that version which as you said is very expensive already but there's also an sdcc 2019 exclusive version of this card and those go for yeah but so i was going to make a joke about buying the foil japanese one that's a hundred and uh sorry hold on 220 dollars on tcg player right now for what is close to digimon art quality uh, really ugly. But the San Diego Comic-Con one is another good way to go. I think the pack foil with five copies left is great. I think the San Diego Comic-Con one, which has probably the best art of the bunch. Really? You I, think I, I so? Think See, I think that art is terrible. The With like the fr- the colored f- cutout, basically? The, the negative The negative space. The negative space. Yeah, I think it's the most like when it, so I judge this by clicking on scry. You know, I go to scryfall and then I go to view all all versions of the card, and it kind of like it jumps out at me much more than the other ones. This stained glass one might look really good, and the mythic edition three one is not bad either. But I do like this one for being much more dramatic. But those are um, those are seventy. Although those aren't foil, are they? Hmm. Well, they they have like a weird gloss on them that is lines up with the where the negative space is so Hmm. they're like a unique treatment the the bottom line is there are three versions of the card that are over that are over 60 bucks so the idea that the pack foil can go 20 to 40 seems very reasonable to me yeah i think you're you're spot on there all right so Um, follow through on your sith specs here what's the next one on the list yeah, if you loved enchantments, <laughs> my follow, my next one, uh, Enchantress's Presence, the actual card. The Modern Horizons two foils are four dollars right now. Modern Enchantress's Presence falls in sixteen thousand decks. There are currently forty copies on TCG Player. It is the top synergy card for enchantments. If you are playing enchantments, you are playing the Enchantress's Presence card. It's also played in Legacy and in Cubes and a couple other spots. So you have some additional demand. Fringe but modern. But EDH is... I'm sorry. Yeah, fringe modern. Very fringe, I would say. But uh, yeah, so you've got some other angles, but EDH is still your your play here. But again, if you think that there's going to be some enchantments in Kamigawa, and you don't even have to buy this today, right? You can... Go, okay, well, Travis is reading reading the tea leaves and thinks there's going to be enchantments. I'm going to wait until it's a little more confirmed. And if we get a week into spoilers and it's clear that that's what's going on, you know that this is going to be where to look. I'm, go- I'm going out, admittedly going out on a bit of a limb here because if you wait until it's very clearly defined... Like when, you know, if they do a big, I don't know what their their um, spoiler schedule looks like, but if they have a, a broadcast on, say, Thursday and they reveal another 20 or 30 cards and show a ton of enchantment stuff, unless you're buying right alongside of that event, um, a lot of that stuff is going to get picked up by people who are very aggressive. So this is giving you a chance to get in the door before sort of the, the more aggressive people who are going to be watching those events closely um are, are making purchases but in any case enchantress's presence uh we've got a pretty good supply glut here with modern horizons 2 still being relatively popular um and technically available but there's still only 40 copies at four dollar foils here the onslaught foils by the way are like 70 dollars or something 150 like that. plus hundred yeah so yeah some ludicrous price so they're not going to be that because those are onslaught foils but I mean, they're four bucks right now, so you can buy these and and get to maybe eight or ten in probably a yearish. I mean, all of these, by the way, you know, you're looking to sell to the Kamigawa EDH crowd, which 
doesn't come out until, what did we say, the end of February or mid-February? And that group always lags a little bit when they're buying cards. So realistically, people aren't even going to be buying Enchantress's presents until sometime in like March and April. So we've got a good lead time here. Um, so I just want to highlight that you're not going to see returns on this in the span of three weeks, right? These are these are summertime 2022 at best. See, I will re reiterate, I, I still think it's much more likely that Sithis is going to uh, push demand on these enchantress related cards faster and more definitely than anything I've seen for Kamigawa so far. But that said, enchantress presence is an auto lock in that deck. And the only foil versions of this card that have ever existed are onslaught, which as we just established is 150 plus there's hardly any copies lying around. There are not, there are non foil copies that have been printed. And then there is the enchantress's presence foil etched version from MH2 collector booster packs but given that TCG player is going out of their way to make sure nobody ever sells any of those foil etched cards by <laughs> not having images on the site, not unifying the foil etched cards alongside the other listings of Enchantress's presence, and um, basically burying them in their website, the price has gone nothing but down on those. And nobody likes the way that art looks under that foil etched treatment. So the sub dollar price tag on those is not likely to be a drag here. I can very easily see these $4 uh, presence cards creeping up to 10 It's not even just Sithis. There's five or six other enchantment-related uh, commanders that happen to include green that are going to run this on any given Sunday as well. Yeah, so. I mean, if, 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 you're, if you're more interested in Sithis, that's fine. I won't, uh, I won't argue with you. I, I'm, I'm trying to play a... A more explosive game slightly with the uh, appeal to Kamigawa, but either way, um, there's definitely some opportunities out there for you. All right, so my final selection here is going to be Liquid Metal Torque, yet another Modern Horizons 2 uh, spec that's looking pretty good. Tons of listings of the non-foils of these, but the foils are are looking uh, like they're under more pressure. Just 44 listings on these, and that's a foil uncommon from MH2. You can get them for about $2 or so, $2.50, and I think those are going to go, give it, say, 16 months or something like that. These are probably going to go 2 to $10 plus. They're in 15,000 EDH rec decks, which is only 3% of all decks, but that's across. Given that it's a colorless card, it can go almost anywhere. And the thing about this is it's a two casting cost mana rock. So it earns its slot in a lot of decks just on that basis. And if that deck has a way to has a number of ways to handle artifacts, Liquid Metal Torque being able to turn something into an artifact so that you can then destroy it or sweep it up into somebody else's artifact sweeper um, is very, very handy. You know, somebody somebody casts a, a Chroma's Vengeance or whatever and destroys all creatures, artifacts, and enchantments. Then you go, oh yeah, that thing over there that's not one of those things is now now an artifact, so it's gone too. Yeah, it's got a, a pretty nifty ability in the way that that works. Um, it's uh, it's not the best mono rock, but it's completely serviceable. And then you get to back that up by also just. Uh, occasionally getting to crush other people's stuff with the ability and i mean liquid metal coating has obviously been very popular um in a couple different places so i like that it's a it's a nifty card um probably slept on a little bit uh but clearly there but the edh demand is building 15k 
Okay. And as an artifact, that means you're just naturally going to sell a lot more copies than you would of anything else. So I think this is probably a great sleeper pick here. There's, there's also some very tricky things you can do in Brea and Urza and other artifact matters decks where you turn something on your side of the board that's not an artifact into an artifact so that you can fool around with it in some way. Like you want to bounce an artifact back to your hand to pay a cost or you're swapping using Goblin Engineer to swap artifacts from play to the graveyard, etc., etc. And then in Modern, with Karn the Great Creator, you see this used in Ponza-style decks and decks that are targeting people's land resources. Um, and that comes up in a few different archetypes in the format. So, old border foils on this are probably going to do pretty well given enough time. Yeah, I think you're. Uh, I think you're right. That's a uh, that's a good choice, and I like, I like the old borders on that too. That looks very old border. It definitely looks like something you'd see out of Tempest. Yep, I agree. All right, so what version of Satessan Champion are we talking about here? This is the. Yeah, so I had to click on this artist's name. Did he do anything in Tempest? He definitely did a lot of old cards. He had some Ice Age cards. He did Balduvian Horde, Legends. He did Army of Allah, the band. I think that's band, right? One yeah. of the band ones. Well, yeah. This is why this guy's artwork feels old. Oh, yeah. Weatherlight. Yeah. Yeah. This guy's uh, long storied history. Um, the extended arts from. So, Satessan Champion. The extended arts from Theros Beyond Death. Uh. This is basically another Enchantress effect, a three mana one three creature with constellation. Uh, when you play an enchantment, it gets a one one counter and you draw a card. So arguably better than Seder, um, Seder Enchanter, but roughly, roughly the same effect. Uh, but these extended arts have only twelve listings left, and nobody has more than two copies. So there's only about 15 copies of the Extended Art Foil Satassin Champions on TCG Player right now. You get them for $12, but you can't get many. There's only about, because it looks like there are three or four that are already well over 20. So realistically, this has like eight copies available in the 12-ish, 12 to $15 price range. So Satassin Champion, Extended Art Foils, Out of Theros Beyond Death. You know, again, you pick up a couple copies and you're probably good to double up, at least get, yeah, double up on those is probably pretty likely next year. Again, lots of Sithis demand, down to 12 listings. No one's opening Theros Beyond Death uh, collector booster boxes anymore. This looks very, it's well up the ramp. There's probably cheap copies in Europe. Yeah, this, this works with all the rest of it. Cool beans. Now, you wanted to talk about beta. Tell me about that. Yeah, so during my uh, search here for Enchantress style cards, I stumbled across Vesu v Vesuvian. Uh, Vesuvian Doppelganger? Ves no. <laughs> no, Vesuvian Enchantress. No, not Vesuvian. Uh, what the heck was her name? Uh, now I feel bad for not remembering this card's name. Hold on. Bear with me a second. Uh, Verduran? 
Verduran Enchantress. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Verduran Enchantress. Why can't... So I... there, there's a beta version of that card, yes? Yes. Sorry, you have to bear with me while the, I get The original Enchantress. Here. Yes, Verduran Enchantress is a 3-mana 0-2 that whenever you cast an enchantment spell, you draw a card. It is the initial, original Enchantress, like you said. This is a beta card. Uh, and they're like $600 for the beta copies, which I kind of debated. Well, more than that. Where, where are you seeing uh, six? The, the lowest price card currently on TCG is 1100 Right. I found one for six-ish. Okay. For like 600 Seems like a good but deal. I, well, we're right, right? That was my thought. So, and I'm as I'm looking at this, I'm going, well, this card's not terrible. Like, you can play this card. This card definitely sees play. It's in... Uh, Enchantress is in. It's in ten thousand EDA truck decks, which for a beta card that's not named Soul Ring is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I asked in our Discord what the because I don't I don't really pay attention to the beta and alpha markets, right? Like those are just sort of in a, a different scope than what I tend to work with. Um. So, you know, I don't keep my finger to the, my nose to the ground on those, my ear to the ground. So I asked in the Discord, just, you know, what is the what is the floor for like a near mint, you know, potentially gradable, but not graded, like beta card, no playability whatsoever. Just, you know, what's the floor roughly for people who travel in that market? And people said it was like $20, $30. I'm like, what? So I went and that sounded weird to me. So I went and looked up on TCG Player and lo and behold, here's a bunch of beta cards near mint copies on tcg player for like 15 and 20 dollars do you know how much a near mint beta prodigal sorcerer is no idea 22 dollars seems too low 22 dollars for a beta prodigal sorcerer come on are you telling me like so there's no way that that card and Crawworm and some of these other cards that people are going to remember very fondly are should be that cheap. Um, I I don't think that you can buy twenty dollar beta prodigal sorcerers and be upset about it down the road. Um, I think that at some point in time, you're going to be pretty pleased about that. By the way, Alpha Prodigal Sorcerer, there's a near mint copy. The cheapest near mint copy is $300. Now, that's an alpha copy, not beta. And it does look like, if I'm looking at TCG Player, uh, it's floated around the 75 price point for the last six months. So clearly there's been a jump here at some point. But I'm just going to, as a blanket statement, tell you guys that you might want to go check out some of the beta stuff floating around out there at Near Mint, at Near Mint that's $20, $30, 40 bucks because I have to imagine that some of those are going to pay dividends down the road. How do I feel about this? The I can definitely agree that a $20 Prodigal Sorcerer on Nostalgia alone seems good. I do, however, worry that the era within which people that grew up in the mid-late 90s and experienced this card in its native habitat and the rest of the beta, potentially underpriced beta stuff, the era in which those people are going to give a shit and pursue those collectibles has a limit. 
And I suspect that limit is another 10 years. So does that still give us plenty of runway to go from say 20 to 100 plus? Yeah, yeah, it probably does. Um, you know, we're, we seem to have backed off the hyper pump on all things collectible and expensive from this time. Well, midwinter to early spring last year, heading into summer was just insane. Um, you know, I think I had a month on eBay that was over 30 grand or something. The things are a little calmer right now. There's no stimulus checks floating around. There's a new scary wave of COVID going on. LGS is probably are doing reduced foot traffic again. Um, you know, there's no big conferences for people to go, for buyers to be going to buy stuff up. That could drive prices back up through the ceiling. Hard to say net-net where things are going to go or how soon. But I do feel confident on a longer horizon, say three to five years, that there will be another cycle of pressure on old school stuff. Um, and that some of the cards that are out on the fringes of that activity that aren't necessarily played all that often, but do have decent nostalgia attached to them, are certainly going to get caught up in it. Now, would I rather put money into a Beta Verdurin Enchantress close to $1,500 versus a Prodigal Sorcerer at $20? Have to think about it a little harder. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because you, you're like, wow, those Verdurin Enchantresses at $500, $600 sound like a deal when you're looking at TCG Player and the low is, you know, whatever, $1,200 or something. And you're like, huh, that's it's that's not terrible. And then it's like, okay, but there's other playable, not I don't even say playable, but like cards that people would be attracted to at twenty five, right? Like, like do you think that like that that gives uh, Prodigal Sorcerer a humongous runway to grow, right? Like a triple up is trivial for that card. There are less than yeah. fifteen copies near mint. Yeah, on TCG I just, that are under thirty dollars. So I, I to to address the larger you know the larger conversation here is you know is there going to be sustained and growing demand for purely collectible pieces as we get down the road and I think that's a very fair question and I think there's there's some additional angles to this you know I've talked to before um, I first brought this up probably two or three years ago well, actually it was probably three years ago because two years ago it was COVID. Um, three or four years ago that I think climate change is going to have an impact on magic once we get five to 10 years away as a lot of things in people's lives become much more important than cardboard. Um, and there's some other aspects out there as well. Uh, so, you know, that still hangs out there, but col these, these collectible pieces, these nostalgia pieces have definitely, had their waxes have waxed and waned over the years, but have definitely grown from where they were. And I don't think that them continuing to get older is going to harm them. Um, I do think some of the demand, you know, from the from the nostalgia will could wane, right? You know, as some of the guys who are maybe starting to to rotate out of that market who would have cared about them. But I also think that. You can have 20 and 25 and 30 year olds who've entered the game at Shadows Over Innistrad who still might appreciate the really original pieces because someone who got into reading comic books in 2004 can still appreciate collecting comics from the 1950s 
or 60s or I don't know, whenever the golden age of comic books or one of the ages of comic books were, um, you know, you can still you can still go back and like the old stuff even if you weren't there for it in the first place. Um, so I think you're I, I I respect all your concerns here. Not to say that I don't. I guess I just I don't see that as being the death knell of this type of card. And again, I'm not telling you to spend three hundred dollars on these because that's you know that's a bigger bite to chew. But some of this stuff at the real low price points is is surprising. I will say. I think it's probably worth flagging that it may be true that the more correct play on something like a prodigal sorcerer as a common from beta is to go after a graded copy. Like you can get a graded nine PSA on eBay for about 135 right now. Um, and I think if I'm choosing between a $20 ungraded copy and a pre-graded one at 135, probably I'm going for the graded copy. Now, if I feel like I've got time on my hands and I want to dick around a bit, you might order six near mint copies and then hope that one of them will grade. Right. Out of nine. What's the, what do they charge you to grade a card these days? It varies depending on how fast you want to get it back, but you're probably going to cough up anywhere from 50 to a hundred bucks. Uh, mm. There's probably cheaper services if you're willing to wait until they clear the backlog. Uh, or if you're, if you trust them. Yeah. I, do, I mean, we should probably do a, a episode where we just talk about grading prices, current grading prices and uh, explore that a little. So maybe we'll do that soon, but the other day I picked up a beta, I think my third, maybe fourth, I'll have to double check, beta lightning bolt. Um, and they're not for my personal use because I, I have altered, uh, revised copies that look like full art betas. So I'm covered there. But I do plan to put, have been acquiring the bolts on the basis that, unlike Prodigal Sorcerer, bolts played all over the place. And it is super iconic. And I think somebody that started in the late 2000s is more likely to relate to Bolt because they can still play it somewhere than somebody that played Prodigal Sorcerer at the kitchen table with their brother when they were 14 and has nostalgia over that. So I played 375 or something for a near mint beta Bolt, which is, you know, 15 times what uh, I can get the Prodigal Sorcerer for. I think I still like the Bolt better. Um, but I could see, you know, the graded Prodigal Sorcerer that you snap off as a PSA 9 going, you know, drying up over the next few years and can't find any copies graded like that under 300 bucks pretty easily, I suppose. All right. Here's one for you. Here, this is a beta card. It's, uh, the cheapest copy is $70 near Met. It is in 45,000 EDH rec decks, 11% of all green decks. Can you name it? I don't think I could do it. You said it's like, I was going to guess Felwar Stone, but you said green card, so. Mm-hmm. Um, nope. Wild Growth. Sure. Okay. Yeah. 45,000 EDH rec decks, though, and 70 bucks for the beta copies. I wonder how much of that is because it's been included in the precons, but still worth a look. I don't even know uh commander 2018 yeah this was in one precon okay that's not bad yeah it is uh because it's a one mon enchantment that doubles the amount of mana land produces like i get it i get why it's popular um yeah so i i yeah i mean 70 dollars is a lot more than 22 right like 
you're talking about a three times multiplier over the Prodigal Sorcerer over there. And Prodigal Sorcerer is a card that people remember very vividly, but is clearly way less playable than Wild Growth. Um, the 10% of all green decks is pretty nutty. So you have some different angles of how you want to approach this. Maybe you've got some different places you buy cards. Might sway what you pick up, what you don't pick up. But I just kind of wanted to put this on people's radar because I would have guessed, if you would ask me, if I hadn't looked this up and you said, what are the cheapest beta cards that are near mint? I probably would have thought the floor was 70 or $80 and anything remotely playable was upwards of several hundred and clear or even appealing. I'm not even gonna say playable. I'm going to say appealing cards that players remember fondly um, would have been a couple hundred dollars. So to see them so much cheaper than I expected is really surprising. And I wanted just to let other put that on other people's radar. I mean, there's 10,000 plus of the beta commons, if I'm not mistaken. Might even be more than that. Um, there Because there was something like 3,300 of each rear. Um, so I'm not sure if it's 10,000 plus or 20,000 plus, but they're not that rare. But they are still pretty rare, and especially pretty rare in near mint condition. Decently centered, yeah, decently centered, etc. So, I mean, especially where you have an opportunity to trade it or something that's red hot, but you think is going to collapse... Like, if you can get out of an extended or Clackbridge troll <laughs> to for some portion of a trade on Facebook into a good-looking beta card, you're never going to regret that move. And that's just generally true when you get a chance to trade up. You can find something that's red-hot and exit into something that's, got, that's not temporarily limited, you know, that it's not going to be three to six months or it's going to collapse. Um, I mean, De definitely worth keeping an eye on, on this portion of the market. We don't talk about it a whole lot. And uh, maybe we'll get a guest on in the near future to talk about things where things are at with the uh, the first couple of years worth of uh, Magic Cards. Beta Dark Rituals, $200. Yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> alongside Lightning Bolt, it's closer to four, right? So... Yeah, I did. Two hundred dollars is obviously not a cheap. It's not cheap, but like Dark Ritual, it's in seventy-five thousand EDH track decks. Humongously, one of the most played cards in Legacy. It's in every cube ever. Like you're telling me that this isn't a six or eight hundred dollar card eventually? Come on now. Yeah. Come on. What's Alpha? I, mean, I didn't look it up, but what's Alpha Dark Ritual? Three grand. But Alpha doesn't fit in in sleeves neatly. So the beta is if you're if you're trying to play on the the edh side of things your beta version is definitely where it's at yeah i mean that's that's all uh, honestly probably a, an appeal to the beta ones is you can actually play with them that well i mean you can play the alpha technically but like eh, you're less likely to i feel like yeah force so there's one alpha ritual for 475 which both of those seem uh low honestly but okay i want people to be aware of those I have made you aware of them. Yeah, there's a couple of $200 beta dark rituals on TCG that look pretty tasty. I'll give, yeah. I, I will there's give one that. at like one at 200 and then like 270 But I, I mean, I haven't gone looking for them elsewhere either. This is just finding what I find here. And you could, you know, these are, these are, you know what these are? These are great cards to target when they do the sales. Yeah, you know, pretty reasonable. getting 10, 15% back or whatever. 
Alright, so we did have a Pro Trader cards to watch this week. Archmage Bagel coughed up Expressive Iteration Foils. These are pack foils that would also uh, have shown up uh, in collector booster boxes, if I'm not mistaken. Pretty sure I pulled some out of those, but it could have been out of set booster boxes. Um, bottom line, Expressive Iteration is a multi-format super staple. It's all over the place. Promo foils are over $25 already. There are no other fancy versions available. And he's got the pack foils to go 750 to 15. This is a foil standard uncommon, but it's out of a set that was relatively shallow in value from the, the main set itself. And Expressive Iteration is definitely a standout. I've sold Japanese non-foil play sets of Expressive Iteration near 30 multiple times. So there's definitely strong demand for the card out in the market. And I think given where we're at with how many copies are left of the Expressive Iteration foils less than you know a year out from printing, they're looking pretty good. Hmm. I mean, this card has been very, very good. Better than I anticipated. Um, the promo foils are over 25. And that's it. We're probably not going to see another good copy of that this year. Down to 50, yeah. down to 55 listings, no major walls, looking very solid. Yeah, I, that's not bad. That's not bad. I'll give them and, that. And, the, and these foils were as cheap as five bucks back in early September when peak supply set in. So yeah. looking pretty good. Looking pretty good. Archmage Bagel gets the $25 gift certificate from Cool Stuff Inc., our lovely sponsor. And that will move us on over to our weekly topic. We had a pro trader ask us about how to analyze and create a solid pattern of behavior around giving up on bad specs, exiting in a timely fashion, and planning what you're going to do next. Um, and this is going to be a funny thing to talk about with you because you never, ever do this. I Well, so... I, 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 this is interesting. It, it popped up on our list and I kind of like, we looked at this before the show, before we started recording. I said, okay, but what does it mean to give up on a spec? That you, that like, you I sell think that's regardless of what its current price is. Uh, that, so that's how you're defining giving up on it. Yeah. You're exiting it, gleaning whatever value you can. And to jump to the end of the story, presumably rolling that into something better. And I think that that, that is one of the key points to make because i've had this question in various forms many times over the years and one of the things i often say to people is when they say should i sell x my first question isn't the debate over whether it's the right time to sell that it's what are you rolling it into because generally if you're going to sell an asset and go to cash especially during this period of inflation i don't really just want to be sitting on cash i want to turn the cash into something better than the thing i'm getting out of so I've got, say, for instance, a pile of 200 copies of aggressive mining that I was in on at, I don't know what the number is. Whatever it is, they're even lower now. Um, no one plays the card. No one talks about the card. It ne has never shown up in magic-related media that I can think of anytime since it was released. It was notable at the time because the guy who did the uh, design of the card, not the art, but actually uh, created the text of the card was the dude behind minecraft and so there was 
there was some discussion at the time about oh minecraft fans might be into this but no not really like they i don't think they noticed or cared so why have i never sold that stack well in my case it is largely because ignoring fail minor failures in lieu of pursuing big wins just makes the most sense for me given how much time i have to devote to my ever expanding <laughs> amount of mtg finance action i mean i do five times more volume of sales now than i did five years ago so and once you're into six figures worth of action with like 12 different angles going on uh bounce shipping from all over the world product from all over the world various aspects to the pro trader business and the podcast and content and the whole nine there's only so many hours in the day between my main gig and my side gig and so i just don't bother to buy list 200 copies of something at 10 cents so that i can get 20 bucks or whatever and throw that towards something else i can take that same amount of 10 or 15 minutes find a hot spec that's going to double in the next month and go on from there now if i so i think what i'm trying to say is that it really depends on availability of time and prioritizing that time to do to generate the greatest roi within that time frame and so along those lines if you're a busy professional um you know, adult with a working life and a, potentially a family or a partner um, and, an, you know, an active social life out of COVID, then you're probably going to be in very much the same boat. You're going to have to pick and choose. And I've certainly always had the impression with you that you're doing a lot of the same thing. Like you've only got so many hours a week to put into MG finance. So you're more likely to spend it buying some stuff that you think is going to work out later than obsessing over minor shit that went wrong down, back down the road. Yeah, I'm I'm a very far on the one end of the spectrum of just limited number of hours a week to think about this stuff and dealing with all these little details is annoying. I mean, this I have like nine Immer Wolves on my desk that I still haven't gotten around the listing, and I think those probably came and went right. <laughs> and I think part uh, part of managing this better is certainly having a system. Like you need to have a tracking system in place. You need to be tracking your collection somewhere um, and ideally setting up flags for yourself that are going to go off, that are going to tell you time like you got in at 10, your target was 22. It's now at 24, start selling, etc. cetera. Um, and if you aren't doing any of that, if you aren't managing anything, then the bigger your collection gets, the more things are going to just fall off your radar and you're going to start bleeding value down that path just by forgetting what you own and not knowing where to find it when something spikes. And and even like as well organized as I am, and I'm probably like on a scale of one to 10, like a six and a half to a seven in terms of organization, at least two, three times a week, some card spikes. And I'm like, I know I own that, but where are the Clackbridge trolls in the house? And... You know, to, to the extent that you are disorganized, you are going to miss on opportunities to exit at the right time. Yeah, I mean, if I don't know if you're intending to do this, but you're basically talking directly to me. <laughs> um, because I definitely have the challenge of, my, you know, my collection grew out of 
grew out of control. Like basically the larger your collection gets, the more time it requires to stay on top of it all. And I, I was, my collection was getting bigger and my time was shrinking. And somewhere along the way, those trains passed in the night. Uh, so now I am sure that I have blood value all over the place on just, and I'm not even talking about like, Oh, I failed to get out of this bad spec, but just like, Unawareness. I I I remember a little while ago I found a playset of foil Clark Clan Ironworks after it had been banned. Sure. Uh, now those weren't in a spec pile, so I didn't feel too bad about it. Those are a hundred dollars right now. Jeez, maybe uh, maybe that wasn't the train wreck that I thought it was. But um, it is it definitely tricky to keep tabs on all of that. And I was really good at it when I lived in an apartment and had no children yeah. and spent 30 hours a week, like doing magic stuff, right? That was no problem, but <laughs> that was, it was a ton of time. I was also playing magic three days a week. Um, you know, it was really just living in that world. So it was easier to keep track of. But, uh, yeah, you know, if you're an armchair guy who kind of only really dips her toes in for the finance component of it and plays a little bit here and there, it's hard to keep all that track of all that. And, you know, to your to your thought about um, having having a system for identifying when a price, you know, when you're supposed to move out of something like, hey, you bought this at 10. Uh, I need to know when it hits like 18 or something so I can get rid of it. Um as far as I know, and this is a very loose statement, there's no really strong platform for that. There's uh, there's a variety of places to cl- track your collection, and they have a variety of pros and cons. We will eventually have a relaunched version that I hope will be the best, but lots of people are on that on that game plan. So the you know there there are going to be continue to be options there will be more options over time um and i think that the way that the ideal is that you can track where you bought it what you paid when you did that and then connect that to a future sale so that you can get the number of days held in your roi and then the you also want to have flagging systems and basketing systems so that you can set goals, stick to them, get notifications that remind you to do things so that you don't lose track of them, um, so that you can sort your opportunities by greatest ROI, so that if you've only got a limited time, if you know you can only you only have time to like list five fresh things on TCG or eBay, but you've got 50 cards in the green, you can sort that, that list by the things that you're the furthest ahead on so that you can get out of them. Um, and potentially also flag them as time sensitive for instance if you know if it's a tribal spec like ninjas you've probably got about a six month window here where you want to be out um ditto with vampires last fall last fall etc and the to the extent that you are organized you're going to gain benefit now stepping away from our situation where we are (laughs) in an increasingly complex collection not going to be able to perfectly track everything Let's go to the other side of things. Let's say you're somebody who's starting out in MTG finance. You've been in Magic for like four or five years. You've been armchair speculating a little bit here and there, just trying to make your collection cheaper. And you've got everything neatly organized. You've only ever gone in on 10 things. And you know exactly what you paid for them. It all fits on one screenshot. 
um, on your computer and you don't really have your collection fits in a shoebox. You don't really have data management or collection management right. issues yet. Right. There's first of all, there's no way we're talking about any of our listeners, right? <laughs> like, like no one on no one listening to this cast has their collection fit in a shoebox. The, we should we the, should agree. There, there are people that sign up for ProTrader all the time, relatively early in their experience with Magic, and lurk in the background of our activities and hardly ever put up their hand. That I know are listening. So let's speak to them for a minute just because they're at the other end of the spectrum. If you're in that situation where you don't really have the complexities of collection management to deal with, then you are going to have a much easier time flagging where you're at. Because with a short list of, of specs outstanding, you can check their prices pretty easily and prioritize your exits. Now, let's say that, just for argument's sake, you bought some standard rare, you bought it at $3, and it's down to a dollar, and you thought it was going to be a super hot EDH card, but in fact, it's like the 36th most played thing on EDH rack. It's only in 2,000 decks. doesn't show up on Command Zone. It looks like it's going nowhere fast, and the graph is just headed to the floor. Um, and gaming companies got a wall of 3,000 copies, and they sell, like, three copies a week. Um... What, what it was a really bad spec? Yeah, but they those exist. People people go in on like pay pre order prices on stuff all the time and and brag about it on Twitter that they think this thing is going to be hot. Um, you know, it's not that infrequent that a pro trader tries to convince everybody that some outlandish thing is something we should be paying attention to, and then gets shouted down. So, what what do you do with that? Like, what do you do with an, a failed uh, a failed spec? First of all, I think there's categories. There's like it's down 30% and there's, it's a penny. Even if you are, you know, you're, you're, you have a shoebox collection. I don't think you need to sweat the pennies. If, if you buy into something at a dollar and it goes to a penny, it doesn't matter <laughs> whether you sell it, don't sell it. If you buy into something at a hundred dollars and it goes to 70 and you've got 10 of them, that's different. Now we're talking, now we've got something juicy to discuss. Because that's potentially $700 you could throw at something else. So in that case, where you think, if you think of something, let's say it's like a, a foil Karn from Double Masters that once upon a time would have been $200 card. But given how Tron is struggling in this meta and it doesn't show up all that often, and there's not that many people playing Paper Magic, and Karn is also good in EDH, but you, know, you have to be playing not all decks uh, we'll find a slot for him, and there's a bunch of versions these days. That card might languish for a year or two before it picks back up again. It it circles back around to my question about what else are you going to put it into? You don't want to move from your stalled spec to another stalled spec. You definitely don't want to move from a stalled S-tier spec to a ridiculous fringe card. Like, you don't want to move from Karns into Clackbridge Trolls unless you know something that we don't that, that means Clackbridge Troll is actually much sexier than we're giving it credit for. You do want to move into something like, you know, if you believe that Soren the Mirthless Foil Showcase, currently available for about $175 on TCG Player with not super deep inventory, is eventually going to be a $500 card, then you may well want to take that $700, buy four Sorens, and sit on them for two years. If you think you've got the hot new modern tech picked out that's going to be in multiple decks, 
and has a relatively tight supply. It's from a set from five years ago. It's only ever been printed a single time. It doesn't have a fancy version, and there's no particular impetus for Watsy to prioritize its reprint. And you're sure, like, you're certain that card's going to see demand. Like, it's it's a multi-format staple. It's not just modern. It's modern. It's cube. It's EDH. It's going to get featured on Command Zones sure, soon. You're sure of it. Also very reasonable. Um, but I think it, it's just as important to focus on what you're moving to as when to move out of the other thing. Now, in terms of what might trigger you to decide that your spec is dead, uh, a constantly declining price, a narr- it's good, I think, to when you're recording your purchases to have a note as to why you did it so that you can reality check that narrative at time intervals. So if you said, like, future four of in modern and you get six months out and the price has collapsed by 60% and it's nowhere to be seen in modern, and it's also not in EDH anywhere, then you're probably just wrong. And if you can still get some some amount of money for it that's reasonable to recoup your your losses, and you, you can get out at 30, 40, 50% of what you paid, and on the back of casual players who occasionally buy this random goblin or elf or whatever that you bought, then and you've got a target to reinvest, then you're good to go. I, yeah, so there's a lot there that you covered. Um, I, I leave my specs uh, pretty rarely, even the good ones. <laughs> it's, and I very rarely sell a bad spec. Um, you know, one of the first points you talked about was the the penny, you know, the pe- $1 to a penny or versus $100 to $70. It is important, you know, percentages are, are something we all love to, it's easy, we love to brag about the percentages. But the absolute dollar values are important because that's really the larger impact on your life. Percentages are good for scorekeeping, but they're not impacting your life one way or the other if we're talking about one penny to one dollar. Um, no one cares if they made eight bucks. What you're interested in is like your grand total amount that you change, that changed the total dollar value that you changed, right? At the end of the day, that's the important number to you in terms of your life. So yeah, if I buy stuff at two or three dollars and it plummets to ten cents, I never, th- I just, whatever, I lost that money. Like those cards are just going to sit in a box, and the worst case scenario is one day if I get sick of looking at these, I will uh, sell them to a vendor at bulk prices, right? And that's fine. That's fine, you know. And that's a that represents a humongous percentage loss, but I'm not messing around with um, with changes at that small dollar value. Um, it's just not worth the effort. At the higher dollar value, I'm more inclined to pay more attention and be more sensitive to those changes. And I, you know, you're as you went as you went on, you talked about the context, which is again very important. If I bought, like, I bought Jace Vrin's Prodigy San Diego Comic Con promos, the black ones, and I think I paid one fifty for them. And then they lost a lot of ground in modern. And I don't know what they are at the moment. They're like 70 or 80 or something like that. And I never sold them because I knew that, well, the outcome at the moment was pretty bad. It was, oh, they're 130. Um, with five listings. There with, was a, there with five w- listings. So <laughs> you'll probably be all right in the end, but keep going. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, I mean, well, this is kind of the point is I bought these Comic-Con promos and at like 125 or 130 or maybe 150. And they tanked. And then they, they, dro- they dropped by like almost half. I mean, it was a pretty bad. But I looked at it and I went, okay, well, this is still a very rare promo. The card is still good. Maybe it shows up in modern again. Maybe it doesn't. It's got some decent EDH play, some EDH play. And But the fact that it's a super rare, like a very rare promotional card means there will always be a value attached to this. And is this just, am I just going to let this collect dust for ages in order to, to maybe get my money back? Yep. That's going to be an option, right? I can sell this and take the loss, but and I guess this is an important an important factor here. Is it James? Uh, you really like to talk about converting the money into other things, right? Like, sure, I could sell this and lose half of my investment, which is a bummer. But the you know maybe I'm going from four hundred to two hundred. I'm losing two hundred dollars in selling it, but now I can take that two hundred dollars and put it into something else. It's a that is. Without a doubt, very important for some of our listeners to consider. I operate in a space where it does not matter. Like having that $200 back does not impact my future magic purchases. That's not to say that I'm rich. It just means that like my magic spending is sort of disc like they're sort of disconnected. So if you're like me where you just kind of buy the good stuff and what you buy in the future isn't impacted by what funds you have available based on what you sold, that's less of a pressure. And that's the main reason why I don't sell my bad specs because I don't have to. So I can just kind of tuck them away and give them time. And like magic cards for the most part rise in price over time if they're anywhere near good, useful, or rare. It just, some of them can be long. And I have the advantage of being able to play a very long game because I can still go spend, you know, a couple grand on a secret layer or whatever um, without having to get that $200 back. Now, if you're the guy who has $1,000 in his magic finance account and if he's at zero on that, he absolutely cannot spend more. That's a whole different ball game. But I don't play that game. So I, I almost feel bad trying to give you advice about how to manage that because I haven't had to do that before. So, you know, I don't want to lead you down the wrong road. There's a few different things to pick out there. One is that you flag the point that your your purchases are not dependent on the income from your sales because you have enough overall income that you can expand beyond your sales if you see the need um and that ties in to another point about the armchair online seller not having the same overhead as as an lgs the lgs does not has long eschewed the speculators model of guessing which cards will be in high demand or low supply later because they just want to turn over and turn over and turn over and turn over. And the idea that they would pay retail for anything to try to get more money later just is completely contrary to their buy list model where they don't care what the price of the card is. They just, you know, whether it goes up, whether it goes down beyond whether it hits a price point where they can't, where the market shrinks um, because they just want to keep turning things over and they have to do that on a very tight cycle because they've got bills to pay at the end of every month that are fixed costs that don't care, you know, about any of the other details. Like if you got 30,000 overhead every month, you got to hit, you got to hit 30,000 in sales and 
it basically doesn't matter how you get there. You have to get there. So they accept much smaller margins than we do, potentially to have much greater volume. Like, I guarantee you I destroy the ROI at Star City Games every year, but I'm also not raking in $50 million in revenue to to break down my profit from. So it's kind of a jewelry store versus a grocery store kind of model. Um, now, for the person that has a thousand to play with, and you know maybe this person is limited by you know par- their partner has said, you know we're on a relatively tight budget. You've got this much to play with. Prove to me that you can achieve X or Y. And we can talk about expanding that pool and experimenting further. I think the first the first thing is to avoid bad specs in the first place. If you want to not have to worry about how you're going to exit and what you're going to exit into, pick more carefully. You know, like if you were looking at the year 2021, focusing largely on Modern Horizon stuff, looking at your Ragavans, your Solitudes, your Urza Sagas, your Asper Sentinels, and kind of stopping right there, you probably would have done just fine. If you start getting into Clackbridge trolls because you're trying to be clever instead of being right, you know, we've talked about the dangers of, of that in the past. There's very little benefit to trying to outguess the market. If some if you know that Ninjas is coming in hot and heavy for Kamigawa, you can look at your Hergures, your Inkai Servanavonis, your Yurikos, and you can stop at the first five. You don't have to go to the 17th card that you think might pop. You don't need to be you don't need to reach for the two dollar card to turn it into ten when you can go for the ten dollar card that's gonna turn into thirty. So pick, picking better specs and really rejecting a greater percentage of opportunities, I think, is increasingly important the more precious your and limited your resources are. Um, and then apply that same principle to jumping into the next thing. Try to learn the lesson. If you picked Clackbridge Troll and it doesn't get there, then don't pick Clackbridge Troll number two when you jump ship. Because <laughs> I'll tell you what really destroys your thousand dollars is if you go thousand to six hundred, buy list it at four fifty, and then buy more Clackbridge Trolls, and they go four fifty to two twenty five, and you buy list at one eighty. I mean, you're just hmm. you're working completely contrary to your own interests. Um, Then you have to put more money into the pot to even get back to where you were going because trying to climb back to 1,000 from 180 is going to be brutal. Probably also worth flagging that with the new tax rules in the U.S., everybody's supposed to be basically running a business once they have like a very minimal amount of sales. And so if you aren't already talking to an accountant and you're doing you know, five figures plus in collectible sales, now is the time to go get that sorted. Because... You could have really big gains on something and you're facing paying some taxes. And if you forget to also declare your losses by amortizing your inventory or via cost of goods sold calculations or whatever, you're missing opportunities to get money back for free. I mean, one of, one of the few things you can do if you've got a business properly uh, set up, and this obviously varies a lot country to country, tax code to tax code. Um, but in a lot of situations, in a lot of countries, you're going to be able to claim your inventory and amortize it over some period of time and if you if the value of that inventory can be demonstrably written down then you can use that to balance profits on other things and you should definitely be doing that because 
it's the same thing as in the stock market. You don't you want to declare losses strategically against wins to keep your tax your tax results fairly predictable. Yeah, that can uh, there's a whole mess there <laughs> to to be considered. That feels uh, you know, I've only just barely scratched the surface of that on my side. Um, I actually have to change accountants because the guy I've been using um, is not set up to deal with that level of of exchanges. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, trying to trying to turn this back to the question, how do you deal, when do you know when to get out of a bad spec? I'm going to look at a couple of different factors. Is this an EDH card? If it's, if, if it's an EDH play... You know, we're talking, what was that one? Mystic, um, the one of the shark in the art, Mystic something or other, where it made all the cre- creatures that came in the play copies of some- the creature this turn. I don't remember. It's from Kaldheim. If if I bought those, like those extended art foils at 15 and they drop to like nine, I'm not getting out of those, right? I'm just going to put them in a in my box and just wait because I know that it's a st- the, the fundamental of that spec were still good. And I still want to get out on, I like, I still think that I will be able to get out on them. It's just going to, it's not going to, it's not a six month spec. It's now a two year spec. And like, okay, that's fine. Like I can, I can live with that. I have the flexibility to live with that because I know that at its core, it was a good decision. It just might've been too early. Or if I have, you know, let's say Frexian altars, right? Is that the one that costs a bunch? There's like two, cause there's Frexian altar and there's the other altar. Uh, yeah, let's say this Frexian Altar, and you know, you had some invasion copies at like 50, and then it got reprinted in Ultimate Masters, and you're like, okay, well, this is going to be a drag. I guess I have to wait on these. Um, so you don't sell them because you know that Frexian Altar is still a good card, and there's still a lot of demand for it, and it's going to go up. You just have to wait for the UMA copies to burn through for the prices to start to climb back up. Those are fine cards. Those are, those are, specs that I'm not going to get out of because I know they'll work out. They just extended my time frame. Where your spec went truly went bad, it tends to be, I think, basically more competitive oriented. Um, because EDH stuff is is generally a if it was a good spec, if it was a halfway decent spec to begin with, it's still gonna be a good spec even if the card isn't getting picked up as fast as you wanted it to or if it got a reprint. Competitive specs are where you can really get bit because you can because some of those cards will just never ever ever going to come back. They have zero play in EDH, and if they miss their window for competitive play, they got passed over, they got trumped, they're gone. Those you you those you should sell. Um, basically, when it starts to become clear that you miss the boat. Uh, I don't, we don't do, we don't talk about those a lot on the show anymore because we've pivoted to so heavily EDH focused specs. Um, but those are the type of things you want to be more aggressive with selling through. If you bought, I don't know, what else was in modern? Well, I mean, the, the worst of the worst along those lines is if the competitive play that was driving the price of the card was standard. There are certainly many examples in the last decade of extremely hot standard cards, especially pre-COVID, where a, uh, a really sexy showing on early in a season, you know, midway through October on Star City Games, Saturday morning would drive a rare from 3 to $10, and then it would collapse back to $0.75 cents after it rotated out of standard. And so if the card is limited to standard play... First of all, you should just be steering clear of that period for the most part right now. Um, but 
if you get trapped and you know that the only place it's being played is a format that is now pass it by, that's an excellent indicator. That's a go ahead and get whatever you can for it and move on. Um, I want to dig in a little bit more about your points because you're basically admitting to suboptimal inventory management. And for some people that will be a problem, but it's also, (laughs) but it's also a distinctive reality for those of us that have very complex lives and deep inventories. So you're, you're basically admitting to suboptimal inventory. I mean, I admit that on a weekly basis, (laughs) But, but there is a key point buried in there. When you pick good stuff, being wrong about timing can still pay off you holding masterpiece whatevers from from Kaladesh block another year out longer than other people who might have been panicked and got off the soul ring train at 300 you're willing to ride it another 12 18 months basically by mistake and then end up with those soul rings being 900 can can obscure a lot of that suboptimal management and what what will underpin that opportunity arising is that you made a supply side play. If you go after something that gaming company has 3000 copies of, you better be sure that it's a demand side play. That's going to play out the way you expect it to premium low supply magic cards do not need to have the kind of demand profile that a massive gaming company wall card does. Gaming company cannot get enough uh, Crimson Vow product together. No matter how many pallets they buy, they're not going to have enough Sorens to build a 150 copy wall plus. There's never going to be 2,000 copies of that card listed on TCG ever, ever, ever. What you see now could go up another, say, 50%, but that's going to be peak supply, period, for a card like that, where there was three versions and they were foil mythics, so they were three times more rare than your average foil mythic. But if you go after a standard rare and it comes out the gates hot at five bucks, there's every opportunity for that card to drop down to a dollar six months out. You yeah, have the yeah, the general advice of uh, pick good specs, which boils down to get good is. But, but that's actually, but that's not what I'm saying. It's, it's not just pick good specs. It's understand that there are different sides to every economic equation demand is different than supply demand is lots of people want something supply is not very many people want this but the ones that do will pay more for it so like we yeah i wasn't giving you a hard time i think what you said about the soren thing is completely correct and like we we both like the supply side picks which is why we tend to orient towards the premium version the foil versions right because like we don't have to worry about the gaming company having you know 900 copies of like this extended art foil um there's just there's just not that many that exist so it's okay if it sells a little slower we know we have the numbers on our side uh i was just laughing at because earlier you said like pick good specs and it's like yeah the advice of get good noob is actually <laughs> good advice well i mean um, the don't and i think the key there is listen to lots of advice filter a lot of that advice try to pick the cream of that crop based on what you understand to be correct and, and in my opinion, lean to the supply side over the demand side. Hopefully you've got both in your favor. You're looking at something like a foil Urza saga. You've got high demand and low supply. That's a great place to be. But if you got to pick one or the other and you're buying something expensive, lean on the supply side. 
Now, what- yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I just I, I think that's a really good point. That's easy. It might be easy to gloss over, but when you're looking at this stuff, shooting for the things that have the supply working for you is generally much safer because being rare is inherently valuable. If you have really good supply side metrics, you can double up a card that doesn't sell that often. Because, again, there's not a ton of people that need that specific card, but if it only had a single printing, you know, like an Onslaught, Enchantress's Presence. If you went in on those when you could get them for 15 bucks, which I'm guessing was five years ago or something. It was a lot of years ago, I think. <laughs> I don't know about that. Like, it could have been... I, I would guess it's definitely in the last 10 years that you could get that Seb 20. Um, and people would have said to you, ah, they're going to reprint that a bunch. Yeah, but they're not going to reprint the original old border pack foil. And if you understood that that was going to be a supply constraint versus the future growth of the game, then you would you you stand to benefit. Now, one thing I'd, I, I want to point out is one thing I see people do a lot, uh, and this comes up in the Pro Trader Discord on a regular, semi-regular basis, is you'll see the same person mention the same card multiple times over the course of a month or two months. And you can tell that they're obsessing over a purchase they made that they're worried about. And one of the things I'll say about that is, if you know that you're the kind of person that lets potential failure take up a lot of mind share for you, all the more reason to narrow the number of specs you're managing. And a, a good little set of rule of thumb for yourself that's something along the lines of, I'm not going to put anything less than $100 into a card. I'm not going to put anything less than $250, $500, 1000 if I'm not confident enough to spend that amount of money, then I don't touch it. Because sometimes we, we cover cards where we're like, eh, I don't think you should go super deep on this, but you could probably probably buy a handful. And that works really well at our level of, of, of buying and selling, where you're in the tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you have a shotgun approach to good cards. You have a big portfolio of good cards. They don't all work out. But in general, you're doing well because you, your overall methodology is very solid. But if you've got limited time and or limited budget, we've already talked about how you should narrow your field of operation. And one of the ways to do that is only put enough money on the table that it's going to materially matter. Because if you put bought eight copies of something at three bucks and you spend nine hours debating that on social media, you're already way, way in the hole no matter how that turns out. <laughs> Just the amount of time you've wasted agonizing over what to do about it discussing it to death on reddit then facebook then on twitter then you went back and asked more questions you got in an argument with your buddy about it for two hours on a car trip you're wasting your time and you got to take your time into consideration so the 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 process is valuable right like the, the i would say that the the learning process there has some utility but i would agree that you know on the face of it you have lost money you, you have come out poorly in that scenario. Other, uh, not accounting for the education. You also need to dial in your period of accomplishment to the other factors in your life. If you know that you are a hustler type personality, you like quick turnover, you don't have a really big bankroll, but you're going to, you have the hustle to get there iteratively by flipping things very quickly in rapid succession, then you're in a very different situation than somebody who's got a very busy lifestyle, has more money than they have time, 
and is comfortable on a one to one and a half, two year, three year return horizon. You know, somebody who's like exclusively investing in, say, graded beta cards has been deeply rewarded over time. But it's not week to week, month to month for a lot of those people like my dad that are holding big, extremely valuable collections now. The people that are flipping to them are on the flipping model. They're getting relatively small percentages, buy a piece of power from somebody for 4000 sell it to somebody else for 4500 a week later. That's like your Tales of Adventure model or whatever. The person that buys that sees that thing go from 4500 to 20000 say in the case of a, a Unlimited Lotus, over the course of two or three years. They put no time, no effort, no work into it. Now, could they have flipped Lotuses along the way and made more money? Yeah, but they were at their day job, <laughs> making the money that paid for their, the Lotus originally, right? So mm-hmm. when, when you're in a situation, um, when you're in MTG Finance, your situation is different than a lot of other people. So you don't necessarily, you need to figure out whose advice matches your profile. Because a vendor talking to you about what to do doesn't line up with you unless you've got vendor time, vendor model going. If you don't have access to a buy list, you're already so disconnected from the vendors day to day that it's, it's almost irrelevant what they say. And that's why I, you know, part of why I was interested in getting involved in MGG Finance was that back in the early 2010s, like 2011, 2012, a lot of the content that I saw seemed to come from the vendor perspective. Um, and that's why you saw so many backpack grinders running around trying to, like, trying to offer buy list prices on the floor at GPs and stuff, which eventually got outlawed, right? They, they they stopped allowing those people to be on the floor operating those businesses in favor of the people that were paying them $10,000 a day for a booth or whatever. Uh, yeah. yeah, I remember people walking in with two rolling suitcases worth of cars. Their rule was like it had to fit in a backpack, basically. Because consensus was the, that, that, was, that was the grind you were supposed to be aiming for. But it turns out that you can... You don't. You can pay retail for cards and make really good returns. You just got to pick the right cards. And you know now. Now we're getting into the 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 world where you know one of the topics of discussion on uh, in the Discord this week was I, I I don't do anything on TCG Player. I buy there, but I don't sell there. Um, but people that sell there have access to that buy list. So now I've set up an arrangement with a pro trader to buy at buy list prices on TCG. I mean, <laughs> that just starts to get kind of ridiculous. If you're already picking great specs, like you're picking foil extended arts at 10 that are going to go to 20 or 25, and then you're going to get it at buy list price at six or seven. Now your numbers are just going to look staggeringly silly. Um, so yeah, boy, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, we'll get to that another day. But just to circle back on the point I was trying to make here is that Set yourself a minimum floor you're willing to put in on a card so that your hourly rate, what your time is worth, is properly considered. Yeah, and I think that's a good adjacent lesson. It ties into the idea of of trying to manage all of your specs properly. Um, Trying to think if I have anything else to add at the moment. Feels like the type of thing that would be good to have a actual conversation. Like I don't want to say actual conversation, but like, well, you know what we should consider in the future 
is when people put questions to us that we find fascinating is see, seeing if they have 20 or 30 minutes to, to record with us and letting them kind of discuss it, right? Yeah, we can do something like that on some other topic. I mean, just yeah, just, so, so they can ask follow up questions type of thing. Sure. I mean, and we that's kind of like what we did with uh, Elizabeth before she she ran off to Watsi and got famous. Um, yeah. But the try to summarize these points. When do you get out of a bad spec? First of all, you want to be organized. Second, don't chase pennies when you've got better ways to spend your time. Um, set a minimum in terms of what you're willing to put in on a spec so that you're not worried about small amounts of money that don't, aren't going to matter in the end. Set a maximum in terms of the number of specs you can feasibly manage um, given your time frame. And know what your next move is. I think, I think those are the key considerations. And then the final point is evaluate the future of the card honestly and as accurately as you can. If it's missed its window of opportunity and you've got solid logic for that, but you can still get some money for it and you've got a good target lined up, those are ideal circumstances to flip the switch, move in out of one thing and into another. Yep. I, I would say that my takeaway here, my takeaways are um, consider whether the spec is because you think a lot of people want it or because the supply is low because the picks with it, the supply is low are generally going to fare better over time because they're less dependent on the whims of the market. Uh, EDH specs are never bad. They're just long. Uh, and competitive specs are the ones you have to keep a very close eye on because those can get away from you and never recover. But at least the EDH stuff is better off. But uh, if you're spending a ton of time micromanaging and trying to keep on track of when the exact right time to sell is, you're probably spending too many hours a week spending about all this crap, thinking about all this crap anyways, and be better off taking a more hands-off approach and uh, using your time for something more productive or at least more relaxing. I'll make a final counterpoint and then we'll move on. Uh, Jimmy and Josh were on Command Zone recently talking about what they thought needed to be done to curate the Commander format. And the primary point they were making was that they felt like the format was speeding up as it was targeted and as so many other formats before it have as all magic formats tend to do as soon as you start making cards for them uh and they were suggesting that cards were in fact being left in the dust and so i think that people do need to start considering that there is it, it actually isn't as simple as all edh specs are good specs i think that all edh staple specs that are supply side driven are likely to be good specs and I suspect that that's actually closer to what you mean, given what's in your portfolio. Wait, say that last part again. That it's not as simple as EDH cards are good specs, because I think EDH cards can be outclassed based on the appearance of uh, new, mm. hotter cards published just for the <clears> format. <throat> but I suspect that it's true that most uh, S-tier EDH staples specs tend to be good, especially when there's a supply-side component. For instance, they print a fancy heuristic study, only 10,000 copies, you're going to have trouble going wrong with that over any reasonable period of time. Yeah, it's, it's not all EDH specs are good, but you know it's just sort of a broader stroke. Like All good EDH, EDH specs are good. 
Yeah, it's like, you know, if you're... And, you know, a good EDH spec tends to also be either very very wide-reaching, like think Soul Ring, or a kind of niche where it's unlikely to, to be replaced anytime soon, right? It does something distinct or unique, like uh, what's that new artifact from Modern Horizons 2 that assembly worker, right? Academy manufacturer, like that's all that's on the other side where it's like this is something really cool and specific and you're not going to see another version of this so that's also a good choice Alrighty, so that's our discussion of when to give up on bad specs where can people find you online travis i'm on twitter at wizard bumpin b-u-m-p-i-n how about yourself you guys can find me on twitter at mtg critic as well as via my occasional articles on mtgprice.com and my constant haunting of the pro trader discord also like to remind our listeners to check out the mggprice.com pro trader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year or $79.99 if you don't care about group buys. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. That brings us to the end of episode 306. Uh, I am unlikely to be here for a couple weeks. More on that to come. Uh Maybe I will be here next week, and if not, you will all enjoy the lovely dulcet tones of a Mr. Cliff Daigle. Maybe, maybe, baby. Thank you, Travis, and we'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.